Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What condition conversation was in? Jay talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, what condition conversation was in. WBZ, Bradley J, if you follow me on the social, you know that Michael Coyne's in tonight. And even if you don't, now you know Michael Coyne's in tonight. Hi, Michael Coyne. Hi, Bradley. How are you tonight? Dean and just is more than Dean, right? You're the president now? Yeah, the dean and the president of the law school. Yes. (laughs) Massachusetts School of Law. What does the president do and what's the dean do? Um... The dean is more, as one would see it, the academic uh, guide, gu- person that guides the law school, where I think if one wanted to separate the roles, the president really is the person that operates the corporation, tries to make sure that the, the revenue is right, the expenses are down, and that the school is on solid financial footing. So you so, have to do both of those? Yes, that's uh, yes, that's what that's that's what the job title entails. <laughs> if you're the the president and the dean, that seems like a lot. Uh, it is, but if you know, it's the old adage: if you like what you do, you're not really working. So I'm I'm very lucky. I really love what I do. I love the interaction with the students. Uh, I continue to teach a full time load, and that's probably where people would say, well, at some point, then that you've got to lessen that load. But the interaction with the students, the ability to work with them and see the transformation, it's really what makes the, the job so enjoyable. So I'd hate to have to lose that uh, closeness that, it, that I'm able to have with the student body. You must be good at it. You must have it down because you must be pretty, you must be pretty efficient. <laughs> if you've done it this long, you should get good at it, I hope. You teach a full load. You are the dean and you also are the, the president, including the fundraising and balancing the books. You've got you to do it all. It seems very difficult. Compared to what I do, I have a very simple <laughs> one thing that I do, and even that's a struggle. Uh, it's 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 a lot of work, but again, I think I actually am very, very, very fortunate because um, I get to do what I love. I always thought I wanted to teach. Um, I love being a lawyer, to be able to combine the two uh, and to be able to, to, to guide an institution that, that we think has a unique mission and an important place. Um, I'm very, very lucky, and it's, I think a lot of my colleagues feel the same way, that we're lucky people to be able to uh, to work so closely with uh, students who work so hard and who really want to achieve something important. So the fall session's been in under, underway for three or so yeah, weeks this now? Is, this, good, is, this, good, is, this is the third week. Good crop of people? Yeah, great. Uh, I, in working with them, I'm very, very pleased uh, that they are working so hard, that they are 
smart and uh, committed to to working as hard as they do. I think that's the at least a part of the problem that when some people go to law school uh, is despite what you tell them how much work it really is that they uh, don't necessarily believe you and then they are surprised that it's an awful lot of reading, it's an awful lot of writing, it's a lot of work to keep up with your assignments and it's not like a lot of programs in undergrad where you can sort of catch up at the end and um, you know, pull an all-nighter and be back where you, where you need to be for your exams. It really is, and we t- I tell students this, is that they, they need to think about each class as preparing for the bar exam. So if you, if you think about the first day of law school, it's a thousand days from then to the bar exam, and they prepare for each class like they're going to take the most difficult test they'll ever take in a thousand days, uh, then under those circumstances, then they will in fact be ready and be able to embrace that test and do well. But that means really you're looking at a, an awful lot of preparation that goes into being successful. But that really is what lawyers are do as well, is that there's so much preparation that people don't see in order to have a successful presentation or trial. Um, the key to success is really preparation, preparation, preparation. Uh, and that's both law and as a law school teacher and a law school student it's all in how much work you do is um what are they reading right out of the gate out of curiosity (laughs) yeah they read cases and that's another part of the the difficult thing for students to adjust to in law school is you're not reading an article in a magazine or a newspaper or things that that do have a lot of explanations about the law as well what they're reading is the law, and they have to learn how to read a case, a judge's decision, and be able to extract the important stuff and throw away the unimportant. And then those cases build on each other so that they learn, in essence, the law of you know, business, of uh, civil procedure, of criminal law. But you learn it by reading the law. There isn't so much experiential learning right away where they're actually using that to solve problems and do things like that other than in the classroom setting. As you advance throughout through your first year, then students start to get on their feet, argue cases, argue motions and things like that to, to, to draft documents. And I think that's the part of the learning that students like the best is actually sort of the hands-on approach where you're dealing with real-world situations and trying to solve people's problems and address them and advocate on behalf of, of folks. And that's where the learning now becomes real so that it's not just reading what the book says, but you're starting to, to feel uh, what the law is by applying it on a regular basis and being challenged by others who are also trying to advocate on behalf of their clients. That's, be, go ahead. must be rewarding to see kids, kids that huh. are timid when they first stand up to argue a case. And then later on, you, you see them gain confidence? Yeah, the transformation from really the first year, and that's what I'm teaching this semester. I teach first-year course in civil procedure and conflict resolution. I teach a second-year course in evidence. Uh, and next semester, I'll teach trial skills in the, in the semester beyond that. The difference between when someone first starts in law school and they're afraid to, to really defend their position and advocate uh, to the last uh, few semesters where now – um, they understand how, what their role is. They are prepared to do it. And, and as I say, to embrace it even when they are uh, full of fear or trepidation that they haven't done this before. It's like athletics. Uh, the more times you do something, the better you are able to do it. And so practice, practice, practice. Uh, we make them stand up on their feet when they uh, discuss cases in class or points that they want to raise 
just as they would in a courtroom, again, to try and replicate the types of things they will have to do in a courtroom um, and uh, start to experience the unfamiliar and be uncomfortable because it really is through being uncomfortable that change happens, and hopefully it happens for the better. Sounds great up there, the Massachusetts School of Law. It's fun. uh, Folks, we're going to talk about Charles Manson case. Because it's the 50th anniversary of the Manson Murders. And we're going to talk about uh, Judge Sinnott, who held Attorney Susan Church three hours for contempt. And we're going to talk about, this is my favorite, vegan woman takes her neighbor to court over BBQ, barbecue smells from their grill. <laughs> and Mr. Wonderful, I knew we'd be getting to this when this happened, a, a boating accident with Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary, guy from Shark Tank, involved in a deadly boat crash, and that's a mess. We'll talk about that. Okay. Now, this is uh, interesting, well, because it's a complicated legal case, and it's also inherently interesting, and it's also the 50th anniversary, approximately, of the Manson family murders. Sharon Tate murders committed by members of the Manson family. Tex Watson took Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkle to Sharon Tate's home, actual Sharon Tate, pregnant at the time, very pregnant, eight and a half months, and Roman Pulaski's home was invaded. He was not there by the Manson family members at the direction of Manson, and you know the rest. One thing you don't know is a couple of people who were supposed to be there. Yeah, I thought that was interesting in reviewing the history and trying to research some of it. It said that both Quincy Jones, the record producer, was supposed to be there that night, as well as the iconic figure from the time, Steve McQueen, was supposed to be there as well until um, he decided that uh, due to pressure from his than Paramore, that they would rather spend time together than to go over to their friend's house wow. and be there. But Steve McQueen could have been there as well. So it's uh, it's the 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 celebrity connection here is pretty significant. And did you see? Because I know you like your music stuff. That the house actually previously had been owned or used used by Terry Melcher from Paul Revere and the Raiders, uh, and who was it? Uh, oh no, Mark Lindsay from Paul Revere and the Raiders. And Terry Melcher, who birds. was the Birds producer, uh, producer and the California one of the devotees to the California sound and the like. So it was, um, you know, a lot of famous people were uh, at least either involved or on the periphery uh, of the Manson family murder murders. So it was very um, interesting. The more you looked at it, even though you thought you knew a lot about it, there were other layers to it that either escaped the memory or that I never knew. You got to wonder if Steve McQueen had been there, if it would have turned out differently. Because <laughs> Steve right? McQueen is macho man, right. and this never would have happened if right. a guy like that was present. Yeah, uh, it makes you wonder. But that's that was always the impression of Steve McQueen, and that's what probably um, it would have been interesting if the if the results would have been different because of who we think uh, he is and the likely results of that. What that would have been. So why do you suppose we're so fascinated by these murders? Are we fascinated by all murders or these murders in particular? It seems like these murders in particular. I think there are a number of murder murders that captivate our attention. And to me, as I thought about why these ones were, because it's really, if we think about it, it's 50 years ago now. This happened in the 60s. There were an awful lot of other events that um, were uh, significant in the 60s. But this is one that we keep going back to. And, and that's what I was wondering as we looked at it, is is it because of the celebrity angle? And I do think, and we've seen it in others, even around here in the 
the Kraft case and the Aaron Hernandez case, when celebrities are involved um, in any way in criminal activity that that captivates us in a way that mundane crimes and their participants don't. So I think it's celebrity angle is part of it that captured our attention. Uh, I also think, to me, uh, what what uh, I thought was an attraction is this is almost you know the worst nightmares we have with respect to the the horror movies and the like is that crazed people breaking into our house in the middle of the night a home invasion where uh, we're stabbed you know hundreds of times before they're done um, and so it it preys on some of our worst fears that that both. Uh, captivates us and concerns us and and intrigues us all at the same time. And I think that's a a significant part of it as well. Um, One thing that I feel might play into it is, you know, first, how did Manson get these fairly, I don't know, potentially normal, otherwise normal people to do this stuff? And you wonder, wow, could could that have happened to me? I mean, how far is anybody away from that kind of thing under the right or the wrong influence. Uh, and I do think that's a great angle. And we, but, we, but if you think about it, we've seen that many times. I think some people prefer to follow as opposed to lead. And there are some people who l- like to lead and have a, a significant power to do it. They, have, uh, they are charismatic. Um, people are drawn to them. Manson, despite what me, we may think of him, clearly – had these leadership and charismatic qualities that he could influence people to do things that that they wouldn't have otherwise done. But we saw it with Jim Jones. We've seen it with others where that type of figure leads people to catastrophic to do catastrophic things. Yeah. So can you talk about the legal challenge that prosecutor uh, Vincent Pugliosi or Puglosi, I'm not sure the correct way to say it, faced? Uh, Manson didn't actually do anything. Well, he wasn't there. Right. And that's the thing. When you say he didn't do anything, that might uh, oversimplify. He didn't murder anyone. He didn't directly murder anyone. And that is one of the biggest challenges here, is that Manson wasn't present at the time the murders took place. Um, It was the number of his followers who, uh, at least as the government saw it, as Bugliosi described in the book and and has talked about on numerous occasions. He directed their activities, but he directed it from a distance. He had planned it and told them what they should do. But at the end of the day, as you're pointing out, that he wasn't there to force them to do it. Somehow these people did such horrible things without being at the the end of a gun or anything like this. It was simply his his influence in in uh, um, directing the plan and having them then execute his desires. So the prosecutor had to prove that he influenced them enough, which is kind of uh, amorphous, a you know, uh, abstract kind of thing to prove. Well, really, it's it's a conspiracy case, conspiracy to commit murder, if you think about it, so that they got together for an illegal purpose, and then that illegal purpose ultimately was carried out. But but so where's the proof? And, and you know, if you remember the, the case, if you remember Manson, he's his own worst enemy. He he looks crazy. He's got uh, a swatch sticker on his forehead and he talked uh, a pretty uh, crazy game. He didn't really um, try to dress up, clean up and act normal. 
he presented as he likely was, and as most people saw him, is a, a pretty crazy person that was capable of doing just what the government described. That's another thing that makes it fascinating and interesting to watch. It's not some guy with a haircut and a suit. It's it's Manson unchanged with his, you know, his craziness. Oh, right, sure, right there. And and that 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 is the other part that I think appeals, uh, attracts people to this whole problem, is. All of this is so foreign to most people's way of thinking that, A, to direct others to do such a heinous act, to be so removed from society that these types of things don't bother you, um, that to be able to influence others to do what is probably likely the, the, the most uh, terrible thing they'll ever do in their lives, for most of us, those are such foreign activities that we just can't understand it. And what we can't understand sometimes um, intrigues us to try and try and figure out why things like this happen. And that's that's the other part of this is that I th still think after all this time, you, you, you do wonder, why did it happen and how was he able, as you point out, to get these folks to do such terrible things simply at his urging, not through threats, not through really any type of uh, personal safety issue, but to convince them that they should do this this type of thing on his behalf, likely recognizing that if caught and convicted, they may never see the light of day. So you need a motive in murder cases, right? And yeah. what would the motive have been for Manson and what would the motive have been for the followers? You, well, the followers is much hotter. I can tell you what Manson uh, Manson was seeking revenge, at least according to the government's uh, theory of the case. Uh, Manson thought um, that he deserved a uh, career in the record industry. He was a musician, as he saw it, and he thought he could be highly successful. And his uh, the object of his hatred at this point uh, was Terry Melcher, who was the Birds producer, um, and um, he. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He thought that Melcher had unfairly um, uh, looked past his uh, many talents. And so what he wanted to do when Manson sent his followers into that room, uh, into the house, is that he thought, Mel likely thought Melcher was still there and Melcher's friends. And he wanted uh, who whoever was there when his gang got there um, to, in essence, uh, seek retribution, kill them all. Um, and that was his direction to Tex Watson. And um, the, the women that went with Tex Watson there was at the end of the day uh, is to cause such carnage in the house, which they did by through the knife. I mean, kind of a personal slang um, when someone is stabbed with a knife as many times as these folks were. Um, that he wanted to inflict pain and great carnage, and that's precisely what he had his followers do. It is incredibly interesting, and I have read, and you have also read, the Helter Skelter book by the prosecutor. Great book. I almost want to read it again. I, I probably read it 30 years ago, and it is so fascinating that it might be 
It's endlessly fascinating. I might read it again. Well, it makes you do think it. For those, for those that haven't looked at it uh, in a while, and I haven't looked at it in a while, again, looking at the history again, it was a great book written by the prosecutor. Um, so it gave us some insight that we wouldn't normally have. Uh, it also made Vincent Bugliosi famous as a result of both the case and the book. Uh, but it was well done, and it really gave us an insight uh, into a lot of the facts and the details of it that we're just not aware of. Next up, I guess we'll take them in the, in the order that... Uh, oh, actually, let's take a look at the uh, Judge Richard Senate and the holding of Attorney Susan Church for three hours for contempt of his order to stop reading the law to him after being warned to stop. Some see it as being an advocate, or being overzealous. Others, on the part of the judge, others see it as contempt by Susan Church. You know, give us some details and, and things to consider. Well, as folks should remember, this is a story from last week where there was the rally on uh, Sunday with respect to uh, straight people's rights and the like. Um, and so what happened as a result of that is there were counter-protests as well um, who really uh, were there uh, to protest what these folks were um, trying to rally behind, which uh, to many seemed kind of silly to begin with, but what it turned into uh, ultimately is from the standpoint of law enforcement, we had two groups um, that didn't care for each other, and there was a concern about violence and the like, um, and uh, public safety was an issue. So what happened is the police ended up arresting um, some of the uh, folks that were protesting the right of the marchers to be there, and they were arrested for various offenses, some of which include uh, assault and battery on police officers and the like, because there was some, some level of violence there, but some of the offenses are disorderly conduct and the like. Uh, as well. So there were a, new, a number of arrests that took place at this rally, uh, and because it happened downtown, they were brought into Boston Municipal Court. Uh, Boston Municipal Court uh, covers the, the, the downtown area, and so when they were, uh, the protesters were arraigned in the BMC, uh, the district attorney, uh, as she has stated in the past, uh, doesn't believe in prosecuting what she sees as low-level criminal offenses and uh, sought to dismiss a number of the charges. And uh, the uh, district attorney's office generally has that right to what we call null-pross the case, which means they are choosing to not go forward with the prosecution. Um, and the case law is pretty clear that it's almost for any reason if she chooses to null-pross it, um, that is within their right. Generally, what they're, they're in essence saying, and this happened with Kevin Spacey down in Nantucket, is in essence what, they're, what they usually are saying is they do not believe they have enough evidence to warrant a conviction, so they don't, want to, they don't believe they can in good faith go forward with it. But in, in uh, Suffolk District Attorney Rollins' case, it's not really for that reason. She believes that the certain low-level crimes, as she d sees them, should not be prosecuted. It doesn't make sense for her office to, from a standpoint of uh, uh, use of resources. But she also feels that uh, disproportionately, oftentimes, our justice system affects, to a much greater extent, people of color uh, than majority candidates. And this is at least some way of making sure that uh, individuals who haven't 
uh, committed uh, a, a serious enough crime don't have criminal records that will then follow them to keep them from employment in certain situations and the like. And it, and it helps to level the field, as I believe, as she sees However, it. you run into this uh, problem here. Who, who do you have to take care of, the community or the person accused? Well, and that, that's, a very, that's a very fair criticism as you look at it, is that you know, Bill Bratton's philosophy always was sort of the broken windows policing, is that if we let little things go, then they become bigger things and bigger things, and crime builds on itself. So in essence, that you attack every crime as if it's a, a serious crime, and what happens ultimately, is, as he believes through that philosophy, is you eliminate crime, restore law and order, and people have a better respect for law enforcement and, and the law and order, and that they can live in their communities knowing that, that crime isn't a regular part of their community's activities. Yeah, I guess yeah, one has to ask oneself, who would want to live in a community where there's this long list of things that criminals won't be prosecuted for? I don't think I would want to live there. Well, and that's a very fair comment, and I think that that's uh, what a, a number of people would share that view is. And, and the bigger part of that problem then is, you know, it might be one thing to say we're going to tolerate jaywalking and we're not going to prosecute it. But but who's making the list of crimes that aren't so offensive to the community that we're choosing now, even though the legislature have said these are criminal activities, we're choosing now not to prosecute these offenses for for whatever reason that we're choosing. And And as you pointed out, that could significantly adversely affect a community and the question becomes, uh, is the community um, willing to accept that there'll be uh, a certain number of crimes committed for which there'll be no recourse? We'll find out. Uh, I think, well, that's, that, that is part is right. right. A Suffolk County DA is uh, elected by the voters in Suffolk County. And to, to a large extent, if they think that this policy doesn't make sense, that it's not improving their communities or their, um, the, the neighbors in their situation, then, the, then they have to go to the ballot box and vote. I would think that a law-abiding citizen would want a law-abiding community who would vote against Rollins. That's what I would think. I, I understand why you're saying that, but I think also we have to look and look hard and recognize that our justice system oftentimes disproportionately affects people of color than it would affect yeah. folks that look like you and I. Um, and, and the fact is, is if uh, some individuals are getting stopped and searched because they are uh, the wrong color, uh, and then they have, uh, you know, low-level drug offenses on their record such that that's going to mean they're going to have difficulty getting really meaningful and rewarding work. Well, that doesn't make sense either. And so, so the problem isn't, I don't think, philosophically that, that we would all agree we should have a more equal and fair justice system. The question is, if we're going to try and level the playing field in this way— who decides, and, and right now it would be the district attorney, who decides what constitutes, quote, a low-level offense? Yeah. And, and the likelihood is we don't have agreement on that because if, if it's one thing to say a drug user who, who, who was violating the law perhaps shouldn't be prosecuted, perhaps we should try to get them into treatment ahead of 
the, any type of criminal charges. But what about the drug dealer? What about the person that is profiting from these uh, sales and the like? Is is it still okay for the district attorney to say that's not sufficiently serious? What about the questions about disorderly conduct to the point where um, it endangers uh, law enforcement or endangers other members of the public? Uh, is that okay to allow or to say that that's not a crime that we think is worthy of being uh, pursued or prosecuted? And that, that is the concern. We saw what happened in Charlotte with both the protests and the counter-protests. People, the, people were seriously hurt. One, one in fact, was killed. The, the problem is, is that we have to be careful where we pick and choose what criminal activities we're going to now, in essence, legalize, even though our legislature has said something else about these activities, in fact, that they are crimes and, and should be pursued. In fact, as you point out, in, in, in are we going to have the community weigh in on whether they think that yeah. some crime, some level of crime, will now be acceptable to just turn a blind eye to? It seems like, as, as, it, as it is, the law is being applied differently to different communities. I th- well, but I yes, it is. But I think it. So I think you're, it does. You're in this community. You're off the hook if you did this over here in this in this community. It's a crime here. It's okay. That doesn't seem right. Well, but that that likely is the way the world works, though. Let's right. I mean, so part I mean, part of it is. I mean, maybe that discrepancy or that inequality is designed to address the previous inequality. And make things level again. That, that's what this one. That that's what the objective object of yeah. this is. But but part of it depends on who your elected law enforcement official is as the district attorney. Suffolk County can have different rules from Essex County, from a Middlesex County All with right. respect to what the what the priorities of the district attorney are, um, and and that's their right to set it. And in part, it's set because they have to go to the ballot box and they have to campaign for it. And oftentimes that, that is what some people look at is, uh, are these law and order folks, what is the standard? What are they going to do? If I elect them, what are we, what are we looking at? So first of all, it's gonna differ from county to county as to who the district attorney is. Before uh, District Attorney Rollins, this, this wasn't even an issue. She s- s- made it a priority to, to really try to, as she sees it, um, not pursue these low-level criminal activities. But but beyond that, it really does differ in some ways from municipality to municipality. If you're in Boston, you know, the, the likelihood is that some minor criminal activities will not get the same attention as you would in other communities. You know, I was, I was in uh, North Conway for a while. We, we, we uh, had a house up there in the ski area. And the house was broken into. Um, the police came. Not only did they come, but they spent a couple hours in the house really trying to figure out um, whether they had any fingerprints and all the rest of it. It's a relatively minor crime. No one was home. No one got hurt. Some uh, sporting goods stuff was taken. Uh, but they spent that type of time on it because it was important to them to try and get to the bottom of it. Other communities... Uh, you would have phoned in a report and told them what you were missing, and you'd move on. Uh, the The rigor and the priorities of every police department differ depending on the community, 
um, and the police chief and what their priorities are. So we do see differences at any rate. So back to this Susan Church, three hours. Okay. Uh, some say she was just acting like any other man would act. No. And, no. and others not. Well, see, okay, that, there's another problem with respect to that. One, um, one I didn't, not any other man, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, like a man would act well, but that's what one of the commentators in the Globe said is that you know, Susan Church's problem, Susan Church was the defense attorney for some of these uh counter protesters, um, who uh, District Attorney Rollins wanted to null pros the charges. Um, what she wanted to make sure the court understood is that if that's the district attorney's goal then as she saw it, the judge has no uh, authority, no discretion to not null prosum if that was her prerogative, because that's the case law in Massachusetts. As a general matter, that is, in fact, the district attorney's prerogative. What uh, Judge Sinnott said is, well, wait a minute, there's a victim's bill of rights here as well. And so I'm not just going to null process at her request. I need to know, have, have the victims been notified and have they have their voices been heard before we dismiss the charges which is also a legitimate inquiry to make with respect to a final action that the court took the court saw it that the potential the police officers involved and and any other individual who was potentially injured as a result of this potentially should be heard before we dismiss the charges. So what we had are two people on completely opposite ends of the spectrum as to the way they were uh, interpreting two different statutes. The judge uh, told uh, the defense attorney church he didn't want her reading the law. In essence, I understand the law. Some would argue that she was being nothing more than a zealous advocate, defending her client's position, making sure the court understood what the present state of the law is. Others would say that the judge had warned her to stop doing what she was doing. The judge saw it, and I think some would see it as sort of a grandstanding gesture with the media and others present. The judge um, uh, uh, told her to stop. So in fairness to the court's position, in affront to the court's uh, authority, disobedience of the direct court order, the remedy is for such uh, actions, what, it's a direct contempt of the court's authority, leads to disobedience of the court's order and disrespect. The court at that point could sentence her to, for contempt, uh, could find her in contempt and then proceed with that. As the defense attorney saw it, she was simply doing her job, zealous advocacy within. Yeah, but the, when the court, when the judge tells you to stop, you have to stop, correct? Yes, that's the problem. That's kind of the the rule. If if, if that came up in your class, <laughs> right? Yeah, you're yeah. Serious? At some point, I'm in charge, and at some point, the judge is in charge of the courtroom, and this is where it gets problematic because there really is a, a tough issue here. But let me first make the point you that we started on the road on. Uh, one of the Globe's uh, columnists suggested that all Susan Church was doing was acting like a man, and now she's in trouble for it. And what I would say to that, with all due respect to her position, if a man did the same thing, Judge Sinnott would have done the very same thing. Right. This wasn't a gender issue, in my opinion, whatsoever, knowing what was taking place and knowing the personalities involved. 
what this was was as the, uh, as a law and order judge, and I think most people would tell you that that's that's both the uh, a correct perception of this judge is that he saw these activities as a direct affront to the court, which is not an unreasonable view of it. Others would see it, and they've called for his resignation. We can we can finish it up when we get back. Okay, after this on BZ. I've got to talk to you privately. Say, who is this talking man? Bradley J. J. Talking. WBZ News Radio 1030. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Do you want to talk? About what? I'm talking about my life. I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand? Okay, talk. Jay talking with Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. We're with Dean Michael Coyne of the Massachusetts School of Law, and we're talking about this very fascinating case where a an attorney was held in contempt. For continuing to read the law to the judge after the judge after the judge told the person to stop, the way I see it is, you have to do what the judge says. And other people are saying, "Oh no, she, you know, she was just only guilty of being a woman," type of thing. No, guilty of being a man, uh, and since that somehow is problematic, oh, right. what the what the what guilty the, of a, guilty of acting acting like a man. Like a man. Okay. but what I'm saying is, man or female. If you show disrespect to uh, many judges, they're going to call you on it. And the fact is that um, despite many people calling for Judge Sinnott's um, retirement from the bench or punishment, the, the fact is is that many judges would have seen what she was doing as uh, potentially contempt, would have warned her as he did. Some judges, when I first became a lawyer— uh, there were judges were and oftentimes a lot harsher and a lot short, a uh, lot more short-tempered. There are many judges back then who would not have gone to the extent of warning this lawyer as this judge did. So, in fairness, uh, when we're saying, "Well, she's penalized for acting like a man," I don't see this as a gender issue. I see this as a law and order issue. Yeah. And if you know your judge, and we preach that and teach that. You need to know your audience and know who you're before. The fact is, is that um, she was pushing it. I think likely knew she was pushing it, and was risking the 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 potential sanction of contempt. And and that's the thing here that I think is important to really take a look at is that Judge Senate shouldn't be penalized as I see it for doing his job because his job, at least in part is to keep law and order in the maintain court control. and to maintain control. Yeah. Now, obviously, his job is also to follow the law. And the de- the defense attorney's argument is, well, he wasn't following the law. He needs to be corrected. Well, at some point, he does. But he had warned you. He told you to stop. 
if he's making an improper decision under the law— Then that'll get handled in an appeal. That's exactly right. See, you, you need to go to law school. But that is the solution. If you don't like the judge's decision, you don't just keep getting to yell and talk back to the judge. You take an appeal. And the fact is, she was also doing her job. She was being a zealous advocate. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, did she go a little too far? I think some would say yes. Others would say no, because she was trying to right a wrong. The fact is, both of them were doing their jobs the way the system is supposed to. Neither should be penalized for it, but especially when the court is trying to maintain order, it's very difficult to tell them that the court doesn't have the ability to maintain order because that's a slippery slope that I don't think any of us want to go down. Bottom line, if I'm the judge and she continues after a warning, she's actually she's totally going to get banged out. <laughs> and what about you, right? Uh, yeah, I think at some point, except, you know, here's the thing, and the, here's the part of the problem with it. I think a lot of judges, with the media present the way they were, with the attention focused on this case, may have let a little more slide. This is not the a judge. second warning? I mean, you, I'm I with you, you to stop. I warn you, after this, I'm weak if I don't tell you to stop. Well, but okay, but you know what? So what? So you're weak today. Is it worth all of the the, the hoopla that attaches to it? Okay, I know you're great. Or I'm irritated. I mean, I'm just yes, pers- but, personally but, angry. But you can't be personally <laughs> angry. You're the judge now. You've got to administer justice with a fair and even hand, even when you're angry. You yeah. can't appear to be angry, and your decisions can't be reflected. Can't be reflective of anger. They and that's where the problem comes in. Is people think you went away from the law, mm-hmm. and and I don't see that here. I think that the court uh, had a legal principle about victims' rights that they were concerned with. the 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 likelihood is someday the district attorneys would have the ability to null process. Judge Senate was simply saying that's not going to be today, and especially in view of law enforcement's opposition to what was going on here. Law enforcement potentially felt that there were dangerous situations that now were going to go unaddressed, and that would put other law enforcement folks at risk uh, of serious danger right. trying to perform their jobs. That's that's not a that's not a good precedent to leave. In Maybe place these either. people will get off, but not today. I'm not going to drop it. It's going further than this because the stakes are high enough, so it needs to. That's right. And if you don't like the judge's decision, appeal it. Thank you, Michael Coyne. These hours fly by. Dean Coyne, Michael Coyne, thank you so much. Each time is better than the previous. Thank you so much. And thanks for the pizza, too. (laughs) Okay. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.